Retreat is always a special time. We come together and we create a place of refuge. A place where we can develop the tools of investigation. Investigating some of the very fundamental questions of our lives. What is the nature of this mind and body? How is it that we create suffering for ourselves and for others in the world? What are the possibilities for realizing peace, for realizing happiness, for freedom? We investigate the very nature of consciousness. What is awareness? What is this great mystery? For many of us, in the busyness of our lives, these questions may come up, but then they get covered. Just in the habits of our conditioning, As we begin the retreat, we settle into a place of greater stillness, a place of greater depth, of solitude, where there is a tremendous immediacy of experience. Now, there aren't many distractions, there aren't many diversions here. There's really a place where we come face to face with ourselves. I came across a piece by the writer Paul Bowles, and he was describing the experience of being in the Sahara Desert. And it just resonated. It's as if, in some way, when we come on retreat, we're creating in ourselves the vastness and the expanse of the Sahara. I'd just like to read this to you. Immediately when you arrive in the Sahara for the first time or the tenth time, you notice the stillness. Then there is the sky, compared to which all other skies seem faint-hearted efforts. Solid and luminous, it is always the focal point of the landscape. Presently, you will either shiver and hurry back inside familiar walls, or you will go on standing there and let something very peculiar happen to you, something that everyone who lives there has undergone, and which the French call the baptism of solitude. It is a unique sensation, and it has nothing to do with loneliness. For loneliness presupposes memory. Here in this holy mineral landscape, lighted by the stars, even memory disappears. Nothing is left but your own breathing and the sound of your heart beating. So at a certain point in our meditation, we enter the baptism of solitude where all that's left is our breathing and the sound of our heart beating. I got the first glimpse of this, first glimpse of this possibility, when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This goes back almost 40 years now. But I was teaching English in Bangkok, and I had started going to some discussion groups uh, at the Marble Temple, one of the famous temples. And I would be asking so many questions in these groups, the monks finally said, Joseph, why don't you meditate? And I think it was just a way to get me to be quiet. So I get all my stuff together, my cushions and this and that, and this is the first time, just had got very basic instructions. And I sat down and I set my alarm clock for five minutes because I didn't want to sit too long. But something happened, and it was amazing. Something revelatory happened. And it wasn't that it was a great enlightenment experience, 
rather in those first five minutes I simply saw that there was a way to look into the mind as well as look out through it. And my whole life to that point had been spent trying to understand myself by looking out. You know, to other people or in school, to books, to study, whatever. And here there was a way, a very simple way, of sitting down and turning the intention inward. Well, I finished my Peace Corps time and came back, went back to the States and tried to practice by myself, but I saw pretty quickly that I needed a teacher. You know, that even though the practice was simple, I was just mixing up a lot of different stuff. I was watching the breath and doing mantra and focusing on the third eye and everything that I had ever heard about meditation. I just jumbled up. It was not that helpful. So I went back to Asia, first stopping in India, and I traveled around trying to look for different teachers. I went up to find some Tibetans up in the mountains. This was in the middle of winter, and they had all gone south. And I went to some Hindu ashrams. I ended up in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I met my first teacher there, Anagarika Munindraji. I remember sitting on the roof of the Burmese Vihara, this uh, Burmese, uh, like a monastery that Western travelers were staying at. We were sitting on the roof of the Vihara, and Manindra went around and asked each one of us why we came to practice. And people had many different reasons for coming to the meditation. But for me, the reason was very clear and unambiguous. Now, it really was for awakening. That was my motivation. Manindra then went on to explain the basic Vipassana practice, what we're doing here. And there was something he said which completely captivated my interest. And it captivated it by its simplicity. He said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. So there was nothing to join. There were no beliefs that I had to subscribe to. It was just that very simple invitation. If I want to understand myself, I need to sit down and take a look. So it's such common sense. How else could we understand ourselves? The simple, but often not very easy, practice of vipassana, or insight meditation, all of the practices are rooted in one discourse of the Buddha. The discourses are called suttas. So there's one discourse of the Buddha, which really lays out the whole path of meditation. It's called, in Pali, the Satipatthana Sutta. And Satipatthana is translated as the foundations of mindfulness or the mindful abidings, the abidings of mindfulness. And he begins this discourse with quite an amazing statement. So I want to read just a little bit of this teaching of the Buddha. He says bhikkhus, and bhikkhus refers, usually it's translated as monks, but it really refers to anyone, women or men, who are practicing meditation. That's the larger meaning of the word bhikkhu. So for this time, really, we are all bhikkhus. So the Buddha said bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, the deathless, namely the four mindful abidings. This is quite a declaration. 
right at the beginning of the sutta, the discourse, the Buddha is saying, this is the direct path to realization, namely the four mindful abidings. So given the import of this, if we're interested in freedom, if we're interested in overcoming suffering, in awakening, there is this very direct path. Given the import of this, I think it's useful to examine in the Buddha's own words, at least briefly, what he points out as being the essential qualities necessary for this liberation. What should we be mindful of? And what are the qualities we need to bring to bear in our practice? So again, this is just the discourse going on. He says, what are the four mindful abidings? Here, bhikkhus, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, one abides, contemplating feelings, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. In regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, which we'll explain later, that is, different objects of mind, one abides contemplating these dhammas, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. It'll be interesting just to reflect for a moment on how you heard that. Because I know for myself, and I think it's somewhat characteristic of, at least in American, if not Western, cultural attention deficit disorder, I find that when I either read or hear the repetition in the Buddhist teachings, my mind just kind of skips over. Oh, I've heard that already. You know, so it just kind of spaces out until he's getting to something new. But another possibility to consider is that when the Buddha is repeating something, often in the instructions, maybe it's something we should pay attention to. Maybe he's saying, this is important. And so tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the qualities which the Buddha repeated again and again in these instructions. Abide ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. Really, he's trying to tell us something. He's explaining to us how we should practice. So tonight I want to speak mostly about two of these qualities. What is the quality of ardency? Now, ardor is an interesting word in English. We often use it when somebody's in love. You know, we're full of ardor for someone. Ardency is this sustained, we could say a sustained application of energy and it's characterized by a certain warmth of feeling, by a certain passion, 
Now, when we're ardent, there's a strong enthusiasm, whether it's for a person or an activity or a pursuit. We're ardent when we realize the value and the importance of something. Ardency suggests tremendous care and it suggests perseverance and suggests continuity with what we're doing. One of the images or examples from the suttas, it's an example of someone who is ordered by the king to walk through a crowd of people carrying a jug of water filled to the brim. And the charge is that this person has to walk through the crowd without dropping, without spilling a drop. If he spills a drop, there's somebody behind him with a sword. He'd probably be pretty ardent in how that person was walking. Actually, it's quite amazing in Asia to watch, uh, often it's the women who are carrying you know, these jugs on, and the gracefulness with which it's done, not spilling a drop. So clearly it's possible, but it takes care. You know, it takes a continual kind of care. There's another example of ardency which was inspiring to me. There was a recent Chinese Zen master, he died some time ago, but his name was Tu Yun. And he became a monk at quite an early age. He practiced until he was 80, and then he taught for the next 40 years. And he died at the age of 120. That's ardency in practice. <laughs> and he had a phrase in his teachings which really exemplifies it. He says he called it the long enduring mind. And so that's what we need to cultivate. That's what this quality is about. You know, as many of you know, this is not an easy undertaking, this journey of understanding ourselves. The Buddha often likened it to swimming upstream, to swimming against the current. And this is very noticeable, particularly on the first day of a retreat. You know, just as we struggle with, you know, sleepiness and boredom and restlessness, you know, just deep patterns in the mind. You know, or the judging mind, or the comparing mind or hoping it'll get better, and fears that it won't get better, and the mind just going through all of this stuff. It takes a very strong commitment, it takes a certain passion, it takes a certain fire within us to really stay awake and to stay aware through all the many ups and downs of the practice. Now sometimes things are pleasant, sometimes things are unpleasant. That's part of the natural flow of how things unfold. And it's all part of the journey. There's an American poet and writer, his name is Dennis Saleh. And he wrote, I have been hard at work now longer than I'd like to remember on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly. Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough. But we moderns simply cannot grasp this. And when I read that, it just so resonated with my understanding of the practice. Almost anything can be done if one proceeds slowly enough. But often we get discouraged by the enormity of a task or by the length 
of a journey. Or we become impatient with the difficulties that come up in our path. We sometimes lose faith in ourselves and lose faith in our ability to proceed. It's this quality of ardency, of perseverance, of patience, that reminds us that what is in front of us is just this breath, is just this step. A colleague of mine, Sharon Salzberg, she tells a story of her going to India as quite young, she was just 18. She went to her first meditation course and was given the instructions, you know, be with just one breath at a time. Stay with just one breath at a time. And she had the thought, well, this seems like a good instruction, as you know, for beginners. Uh, but she felt that once she got you know, somewhat accomplished, then she'd get the higher secret teachings. But by the end of the retreat, it was still the same instruction. Just be with one breath at a time. And then ten courses later, five years later, it was still the same instruction. Well, tonight I'm going to give you the secret teachings. (laughs) And it's a shame she's not here to hear them. Okay, the real secret teaching is not to be with one breath at a time. It's to be with half a breath. (laughs) Because one breath is too much. There's plenty of time for the mind to wander if we're trying to be with one breath, as you probably noticed. But if your intention is to be with half a breath, just the in-breath, just the rising, in, did it, out, or rising, falling, just half a breath at a time, you will see that that actually is within our capacity. We actually can be with half a breath. And the great discovery is that that's all we need to be with. A half a breath at a time could lead us to Buddhahood. So it's understanding this which actually gives us the strength and the confidence to proceed with order because it's within our capacity. There are a few suggestions for how to sustain this quality of ardency. How do we sustain it half breath by half breath throughout the day? There are a few reflections which really keep us pointed in the right direction. And they're worth periodically just reflecting on It's a way of arousing energy. The first reflection is on the preciousness of our human birth and all the conditions that came together to make our practice, to make this retreat possible. You know, when you think about what it takes, we need the resources, we need the time, we need the interest, We need the motivation. A lot of different things have to come together for us to all be here doing this. And simply to reflect on these conditions as being a great blessing in our lives rather than taking them for granted. Because there are so many places in the world which we are often painfully aware of these days where people can be leading happy, peaceful, stable lives, and then in a day or in a week something happens and their whole life is turned upside down. You know, it could be a natural disaster. You know, perhaps you read just before the retreat started, the flooding in Bangladesh. There were some 15 million people or more, I forget, homeless. You know, where all of a sudden, just one's life has completely changed. It could be the onset of some illness. Just all of a sudden, we have to deal with this. 
It could be war. It could be violence. There are so many things that can upset in a moment the conditions necessary for this kind of practice. Reflecting on the preciousness and the blessing of the conditions really can keep the fire of awakening within us. Kenzi Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan master of the last century, and his incarnation has since been found as a little Kenzi Rinpoche now, but this, this teaching is from the last one. Ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. And how many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? And how many of those who think of practice actually do it? And how many of those who start continue? Once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. It's rare. And so it's just understanding the blessing of it. Another way of strengthening our ardor, half-breath by half-breath, is reflecting on the transiency of phenomena. Now look at all the things we identify with and get attached to in our lives. Now it could be certain people that we're attached to. It could be possessions. It could be our bodies staying a certain way, being a certain way. It could be wonderful ideas and feelings that we get attached to. But there's nothing which arises, whether in our body, in our minds, outside, which is outside the great truth of change. Everything is subject to the law of birth, aging, decay, and death. And this is just the Dharma. This is the truth. This is the law. It's the natural law of how things are. And so often we get caught up in the movie-like dramas of our minds. How many stories, just today, just in one day, in one sitting? Now, how many dramas, how many movies do we get lost in before we remember, before we wake up? Oh yeah, that's just a thought. Back to the breath. Awareness of change and really reflecting on it and seeing it reminds us, or can remind us, of our purpose in practice. What is it that brought you here? I mean, it certainly wasn't to have a vacation. (laughs) You wouldn't come here for that. There's some other purpose. There's some deeper understanding You know, what are we doing? What choices do we make in our lives? Just a useful experiment sometimes, which I have found very powerful, is to imagine myself on my deathbed, really dying, and reflecting in this kind of mental experiment, okay, in that moment, and really trying to visualize it and feel it, you know, and imagine, okay, what would it be like? In that moment, or in those moments of dying, what really is of importance? From that perspective, what is of value in our lives? What is of real value? Is it the things we've done, or the objects we've collected, or the projects we've completed? Probably not. It probably has to do with some quality of our heart, just openness, 
the quality of love, the ability to let go, the quality of peace, the quality of equanimity. Now, in that moment, is the mind free? Is it grasping? Well, I think the value of the experiment in asking that question for ourselves, and it's not that you should necessarily believe the answers that you know I feel are important, but really to see for yourself what's important. But the trick is to ask the question now, because then it will be too late. So all of this arouses this quality of ardency, of ardor for our practice, for understanding. The Dharma is really a jewel of priceless value. Because when we understand the Dharma and can practice it in our lives, it really becomes the source of every happiness. Because we understand the causes of happiness and we cultivate them. We understand the causes of suffering and we let them go. One of the very great Thai masters, uh, he was this also of the last century, he was like the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. His name was Ajahn Man. And he was this great yogi and meditator and very enlightened being. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana, that is ultimate peace. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So really that's what we're doing here. what, What brings us all here together is the recognition that the mind is a priceless treasure and the understanding that we need to train it. So this is the first quality that the Buddha emphasized in the Sutta on the direct path to realization. He said one should abide ardent. The second quality that the Buddha emphasized is clearly knowing. Sometimes it's translated as clear comprehension. The word in Pali is sampajano. And this is the ability to be clearly aware of what is happening moment to moment, of what is taking place moment to moment. Now, and often people find sampajano, clear comprehension, hardest to maintain in times in between the sitting and walking. Now, in the sitting and walking, we're kind of at least we know really what we're supposed to be doing, and though the mind may wander a lot, still we come back to the breath, we come back to a step, so we're practicing this clear comprehension. But it's the times in between that are so important. You know, the time in your room. Are you clearly knowing what you're doing? Going from one place to another, taking a walk after lunch, doing your yogi job. It's hard, because our minds are in the habit of being distracted, of getting lost. The training of clear comprehension in these activities in between sitting and walking are perhaps the most important training for carrying the practice back into the world. You probably don't spend your lives 
sitting cross-legged on his ankle. You know, or lifting, moving, placing. You engage in all the, all the activities of life, of the world. If you train yourself here to pay attention, it will carry over a lot into your life outside. So how to do this? How to effect this training? One very helpful tool is also very simple, and that is by slowing down a bit. When we slow down, it's easier to feel the subtleties of our experience. We're not simply rushing through or skipping over things. We can actually feel the body in the various activities. Slowing down helps the continuity through the day. Now this is the great gift of a retreat. Aside from your yogi job, you really don't have any other responsibilities except to pay attention. This is your job. Pay attention. And so you can slow down. This is the gift to yourself. It was beautiful practicing in Burma, because especially at the monasteries, it was especially the women, the women yogis, who had this amazing... It was an amazing grace because they would often practice with this quality of care and continuity, just taking this impeccable awareness in whatever they did. And it was it was like a Japanese tea ceremony in motion. You know, and there was such beauty to it and such grace and it was an example of how it's possible to practice. But in our Western culture, we're just so speedy. You know, we're kind of rushing through things. So use the gift of the retreat. Slow down. Also need to pay attention to the context. You don't particularly want to be creeping along when you're online for lunch and there are 70 people behind you. You know, that's a time to practice a little faster gracefulness of attention. But there are many times in the day when you can slow down in this way and it will be very helpful. It's not a question of holding yourself back. It's a question of settling back into the moment. So there's no strain involved in this. It's not like you're you know, everything wants in you wants to be moving quickly but you're you know, forcing yourself to move slowly, that's not helpful at all. It's just, can we settle back into the moment and then take care with what we're doing? There's an art to this, you know, and it takes practice. If you're straining, if you're struggling, whether it's with the breath or the walking or in moving about, if there's that sense of struggle and straining, then you need to settle back, you need to relax, you need to open up, you need to let the mind become more spacious. Sometimes you can open to the whole body instead of zeroing in on a particular object. Nindra my teacher, he gave what I think was the simplest meditation instruction ever. He said, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. So whenever you have that sense of struggle, of straining, where you're getting too tight, to settle back, open up, sit and know you're sitting. Walk and know you're walking. allowing the mind to find that place of spaciousness. But if we're too relaxed, you know, if there's not enough care, not enough attentiveness, and we're just indulging the wandering mind, 
Now getting lost in what I like to call Vipassana brilliance, where in our meditation, suddenly every idea we have is worthy of a Nobel Prize. You know, and we just get caught up in how brilliant our thoughts are and our stories and our understandings of ourselves and the world. And we get carried away. At that time, when we're simply indulging the wandering mind, then we need to bring a little more Intent, intention and forcefulness to our practice. It's like we use the sword of wisdom at that time. You know, and we're just in this indulgent frame of mind. Okay, enough. You know, what am I doing here? What is my purpose? One time in my practice, I was going through an extended thinking jag. You know, I was just lost in these recurring fantasies again and again and again. They were pleasant, which is why I got lost in them so often. So at a certain point, I remember, I remember asking myself, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? You know, and it just kind of reminded me, okay, what am I doing here? You know, what is my purpose in undertaking the practice? And sometimes we need to use that side, that strength of mind. This is the art knowing when to become more spacious, more relaxed, when to tighten things up a bit. Another way of strengthening this clear comprehension is using the tool of mental noting. As you go through the day, and this is worth experimenting with. See what happens when you use the tool, when you use this mental label to simply note everything you're doing. Just as an example, you're opening a door. Mostly, we just open the door to, to get to the other side. But if you're really mindful, you could be opening the door and noting, reaching, touching, the knob, turning, pulling, lowering, stepping, 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 or in eating. Good chance, good opportunity to practice this clear comprehension. We have so much conditioning around food, you know, so many habits. To settle back, take your time, reaching, lifting, opening the mouth, you know, placing food in it, closing the mouth, chewing, tasting, swallowing, so many processes. Now, so often, as you've probably noticed, we can have a mouthful of food, we're still chewing, and the arm is reaching for more. You know, we haven't even swallowed what we have in our mouth. But it's all that desire, that you know, urgency for the next taste hit. Now, for some people, this noting, it's really easy for them to do all throughout the day. Now, they just get into this very gentle, quiet rhythm, noting moment after moment. For other people, kind of the thought of doing that just seems too much. You know, they're not, for whatever reason, they're not temperamentally inclined to it. Let me say, for those of you who are, I would really suggest you do it, because it's a very powerful way of keeping continuous mindfulness, of really being clearly comprehending moment after moment. The practice gets very powerful. For those of you who are not, you know, it just feels like it's too much, you might make the experiment and take 10-minute periods now just take a 10-minute period in the course of the day, especially in the in-between activities, where you take 10 minutes and you note everything. Because it will give you the taste then, or the experience of what it means to have that precise awareness, moment after moment. Then you can either continue with the noting or not, but you will be familiar with that level of attentiveness. So sometimes people hear about all this. You know, they hear about silence and ardency and 
continuous attention and clear knowing and it just begins to sound really grim well it's important to realize that awareness and grimness are two very different things that you can be aware you can be mindful in a very open-hearted light frame of mind you don't have to be grim as you're moving through the day it's really a question of settling back into the moment and being fully open to it because all of these qualities contain within them the feeling or the attitude of loving kindness and in Pali this is called metta It's the quality of being a friend to ourselves, a friend to our minds, a friend to our bodies, a friend to the environment. That's what being aware implies. There's a samurai poem from you know, medieval Japan, and one of the lines in this poem says, I make my mind my friend. we begin to realize that this practice that we're doing, the practice of becoming awake, of becoming aware, you know, with ardor, with passion, with continuity, is not just for ourselves. That really we are doing this practice for the welfare and benefit of the whole world. Now the question might reasonably arise, how does sitting here watching my breath or taking a mindful step help anybody else? It's not immediately apparent that it does. But it benefits others in two very important ways. The first way our practice is of benefit to all others is that the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand each other. Because our stories are all different. We all have different backgrounds and different education and different cultures. So our stories are different, but the nature of our heart-mind is just the same. The nature of anger, the nature of love, the nature of happiness, of sadness, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, it's all the same. And so the more deeply we understand these qualities within ourselves, we really touch the commonality of the human experience. And we see so much suffering in the world today because people seeing other people as different, as other. the more we can understand ourselves, the more connected we feel. The second way our practice benefits others is that as we become more accepting, more loving, as we become less judgmental, less fearful, less selfish, the world becomes that much more accepting and loving, that much less judgmental and and fearful. Because this mind and body is a vibrating, resonating energy field. That's what it is, and it becomes increasingly apparent in meditation that that's what it is. And so how we are inevitably affects everyone around us. It cannot, it cannot help but affect everyone around us. Now it's sort of like being on a boat in the middle of a storm. And we're on this big sea and we're in this boat and there's a big storm raging 
one wise and calm person can bring everyone on that boat to safety. Well, the world is something like that boat. You know, and it's being rocked. It's being rocked quite violently now by all the forces of greed and hatred and fear. So can we be one of those people, one of those persons, who through our own understanding, our own compassion, our own growing feeling of connectedness, help bring this boat, the boat of this world, to a place of peace, to a place of safety. I would just like to close with a little reading from a man named W.H. Murray, who was on a Scottish Himalayan expedition. This is what he wrote. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So this is our practice. We commit ourselves to awakening. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Because boldness has genius and power and magic in it. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.